You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our reading this morning is from Psalm 73, verses 13 13 through 28, which is on page 455 in the Floor Bibles. Um, If you want to follow along. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and sorry, and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you'll pray with me. Lord, I just thank you um, for this day, for allowing us to gather together to to hear your word and... um, learn more about who you are and what you want from us. And I pray for uh, Casey as he comes today, um, that you would just speak through him and that you would give us all ears to listen and minds to understand and hearts to receive uh, what he has to say or what you have to say through him, Lord. Um, I pray as we listen to the sermon, we'll, you'll just help us to yearn for the eternal and lay down our earthly desires. Um, thank you for this building that we're, we can gather in. And I just pray that as fall is approaching and school's going to be starting soon, that you would just put a hedge of protection around this building, Lord. That students and teachers who come in next month will just feel your presence and know something is different. Um, yeah, Lord, I just pray that you would open up more opportunities for us to serve the people in this school. I pray for the kids here that this would be a safe refuge for them. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here. And uh, man, I hope you have your Bible. If not, there could be a Bible in front of you somewhere on the floor. Uh, they're scattered very randomly. Um, but we're going to be uh, in Psalm 73 And we're actually going to start off looking at the first five verses uh, because it explains where where we start, where he says, man, out for foolishness, you know, in vain I have followed after you. And so it explains uh, what what the psalmist, what Asaph sees. And what he sees is something that feels unjust and it feels wrong. And and it grows something inside of him. It grows something inside of him that I felt starting to grow in me right at the end of college. And so right at the end of college, I moved into a house with five other guys. Um, It was beyond capacity, but rent was cheap. 
And so we, we moved in and we uh, started painting stuff and renovating it. Our landlord loved us. And then we asked our, our landlord if she would buy uh, like uh, fertilizer because we started thinking, man, we need a seriously good yard. Now, it was at that moment when we were prioritizing yards that I realized it is time for us to graduate college and just go ahead and move to the suburbs. But we started thinking, man, we want great grass. Now, great grass is something I've been chasing, uh, I feel like, my, my whole life. When we uh, moved into uh, to Warrensburg, we bought a house that was um, unfinished. It had been given up by the builders, so we bought it from the bank. It had been repossessed. And the, the yard looked like a jungle. Like, literally, you could lose kids in there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so we were trying to get temporary occupancy, and uh, the... Uh, the city got back to us and said, we'll give you temporary occupancy if you fix the yard. The neighbors had just complained and complained and complained. So we hired a landscaper. And it was like the most satisfying thing I've ever seen. One day they came out and pushed everything away and laid black dirt down. The next day they came out and they unrolled a carpet of green grass. And I had never had grass like this. And I remember thinking, I just want to lay in that grass. But then I was like, if I lay in the grass, it might kill it. And so we just watered. And I looked at my yard and I said, I feel like I'm 60 years old and I'm so proud. But I was so excited. I was finally, like, I finally had arrived. And then I got afraid because Halloween was coming and kids were going to be dressed up and they were going to trample my green grass. So I took caution tape and I put it all around my yard. Like the caution, like, beware. It was a horrible idea. The kids would see it from down the street and they thought it was some sort of like haunted house and they flocked to it. We lived there and I slowly killed all that grass away. Um, there's more to it than just rolling grass out. When we moved here, we moved next to a guy named Van. Van had the best yard I had ever seen. And so I start fertilizing, just trying to make my yard look like Van's, and it didn't work. One day I was talking to Van, and I was like, Van, do I need to keep my kids off your grass? And he said, no, I, I don't want to be a Mr. Harvey. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. He said, when I was growing up, Mr. Harvey would never let kids play on his grass. He'd always yell at them. And I was like, well, then I'm going to be Mr. Harvey. I don't want my kids on your grass. I was green with envy. Green with envy comes from Shakespeare when he describes the monster of envy as a cat with green eyes that toys with its food before he kills it. The, the picture of envy that we have in the Bible is something that we could take that exact analogy. It toys with us to destroy us. It grows something in us. It hovers over us, holding us to look outside of ourselves, to want something that we don't have. And that's why the ancients called envy one of the seven deadly sins. But like when we think about envy, it's just a good marketing campaign. Envy is the desire to have someone else's life, the dissatisfaction with what I have in the Bible. And what we see here, Asaph describes it as something that grows and brings doubt. Psalm 73 starts book three of the Psalms. And so book three consists of Psalms 73 uh, through 89. The majority of book three is written uh, by Asaph. 
Like we actually just read about Asaph, actually Isaiah and Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29. And so what was happening was King Hezekiah was a good king and did right in the eyes of the Lord. His first act of business when he took over the kingdom in the first month of the first year was to open the temple, to restore the temple, and to invite people back to church. Like the people had forgotten, they started, uh, you know, they started running after different idols. And so he opened up the temple to invite them back to church. And we read about this and we hear the name Asaph in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 29 through 30. It says, when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And look, it says this, and they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped. If you were in the Bible reading plan, you would see these words come together multiple times as chapter 29 and 30 begin, where it would say, as we worship the Lord with song, gladness comes into our heart. There's something about seeing who God is, speaking who God is, that settles in our soul and changes us. And the result of that change, although sometimes grace is slow, is gladness. And so as we look at these words of Asaph, his second psalm in the book of Psalms, his first was Psalms 50. Man, my prayer is that as we look, these words, they find their way on your lips. And they sink down into your heart and they grow roots. And the roots that they grow create a system of contentment and gladness. And I say this with great authority because Romans 10, 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We look to the scriptures to see who Jesus is. And with great authority because it's going to only grow and grow because we see at the end in Revelations 14 that the masses gather around and they all praise the name of Jesus and their hearts sing. And so we invite in before that. So look at the text. Like, look at it as a whole. Like, before Psalm 73 has any worship, it has something that we've all dealt with. It has doubt. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Asaph starts to doubt. His doubt is leading. It says that he almost slipped and he almost stumbled. It goes on. It says he loses sight of what is true and he starts to envy the wicked in verse 3. From his view, look at verse 3 through 5. The wicked are doing just fine. They seem to prosper. We see that word. They seem to prosper in their wickedness. And then it gets worse. In verses 6 through 12, which we're not actually going to look at that, it seems that the more wicked they get, the better it goes for them, as if God can't see them, or maybe God doesn't care. And then that section ends with, look at verse 12. It says, Behold... These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Asaph looks at his life in verse 13, and he asks this question, maybe I've run after the Lord in vain. 
Maybe it's not even true. Like, and what he found inside of himself, if you jump down to verse 21, is he found inside himself an embittered heart. He sensed bitterness growing, and he's starting to connect with what he sees, but something has a power inside of him. And he's like, how do we defeat this when doubt takes hold, when bitterness is at the foot of our door and it's desiring us? What do we do? Like, just for a second, like, just surveying those verses, like, what do you think about Asaph's assessment? Like, like it, it, do you, is his doubt about right? Like, are, are you questioning, is, is this even worth it? Like, like how's your doubt? How, how's your envy when you look at the landscape of life around you? Does it seem like maybe God can't see what's going on or doesn't care? Does it ever bother you? When you're like, man, I'm trying to do it right, and it seems like people who don't care just get everything I want. How do you feel? Psalm 73 is so honest with us. Like, it, it tells us that we will have doubt and we will fight bitterness. It tells us that at times evil will prosper. It also tells us that we can fight through doubt. It tells us that God holds us. And even while we doubt and accuse, it tells us that the way through doubt and bitterness is to do what? It's to worship our way through. And it gives this incredible promise of you will find satisfaction. And it gives a prediction that one day the evil that prospers around you will prosper no longer. L listen to this quote. So Derek Kidner, I mean, a great commentary on the Old Testament, especially Psalms and Proverbs. He writes this. He says, this great psalm is the story of a bitter and despairing search, which has now been rewarded beyond all expectations. It recalls the kind of questions that distracted Job and Jeremiah. But at the end, they no longer seem unanswerable. And the psalmist has a confession and a supreme discovery to share. You know, to say that another way, Asaph is honest about his doubts and he is wrestling with what he sees and what he feels. And he discovers something dark living inside of him. And then he discovers something wonderful about the God that we follow. And he shares it with us because one day, we will walk that path also. And so we're going to look at this with just two headings, two main points. So first we're just going to say, what is the problem? And the problem is doubt. But then we see envy and motives follow that problem. And so what is the problem? And then we're going to say, man, what is the solution? How do I fight it? And then ASAP's going to tell you to go to church. So you're doing good so far. So here we go. What is the problem? We're going to see these words, doubt and envy, but then we're going to see this bent motivation inside of us. And so the first thing we start off with is creedal statement. Listen to this statement. It says, verse 1, truly God is good. So I don't know if you grew up in church or not. There was a time where my church would, uh, the preacher would get up and he would say, God is good. And we would say, all the time. And then he'd say, all the time, God is good. It's a creedal statement to remind you of something, to simplify a truth that we need to remember that no matter what season you find yourself, there is a reality that is truer than what you feel that is held in God's hands, that God is being good. And so it starts off with this creedal statement. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And, and so the truth is God is good. Truly God is good in all things, in all ways. God is good. 
But then it says who God is good to, and it says he's good to real people with doubts and struggles. And so verse 1, it says he's good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. Now, there's some debate if Israel was added in later, and I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for it, but there are some translations that don't have Israel, but they might say he is uh, good to the upright who are pure in heart. Like, it seems to me to fit the context in most transcripts that say that he's good to Israel because that would have fit the evidence and the audience that he's speaking to. And so Asaph stands up and says, God is being good to us. He's wanting you to believe a simple truth, a statement that is more true than the ground that we stand in, more true than what we feel or what we see. God is being good. And I actually love if you unpack the, the, the name Israel. And so if you, if you remember the name Israel, it started with Jacob. And, and so Jacob wrestled with God. And so the, the name Israel means one who strives with God. Jacob was on the run. He had stolen his brother's inheritance and his birthright. He took it from his brother Esau. And Esau declared, I'm going to kill Jacob as soon as dad dies. Which that's a really serious thing if you're known for your cooking skills and your smooth skin and your brother who just said he's going to kill you is known for his hunting skills and his rugged manliness. So Jacob, he, he goes on the run. He, he runs away. And so years later, he's returning. Now he has a family and God has blessed him. Years later, he's returning and he's going back home and he hears that his brother Esau is coming to meet him. We don't know how he's coming to meet him, but he's bringing 400 armed men with him. That sounds bad. And so he decides that, man, this, I'm wrestling here. Like, do I move forward and maybe die? Do I go back and maybe be homeless? I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do? So he decides to sleep on it. And that night it says that he wrestled with God. And so when he woke up, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, one who wrestles with God. And so some people go ahead and they take that and they say one who strives with God or one who wrestles with God and they just make it God prevails because if you wrestle with God, God wins. I mean, it's like the videos that you see where the small guy is fighting the really, really big guy and he comes out with just a barrage of punches and kicks and it's beautiful and it looks like it might be effective until the big guy just picks him up like a two liter and smashes him down. God prevails. But this tells us something in this. Jacob wrestled with God. God's people are the people who wrestle with God. The, the people who wrestle in belief and action, the people who sometimes aren't sure, these are God's people. He will be victorious over them. He will be victorious for them. He will be good to them. Asaph is one of those people who's wrestling with God. And look at what he says about himself. We're going to learn a couple things that mature Christians will walk into because I think Asaph was probably a mature God follower. And so first, mature Christians can struggle with doubt. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 it says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph is saying, like, I almost lost my footing. I almost lost my way. I almost gave up. And like in this kind of antiquity, like for a Hebrew writer to write this, he's saying, I almost lost it all. 
Like if you, if you lose your footing on ice, you might break a bone. If you lose your footing on a mountain, you might fall to your death. But he's talking about his inner life, his soul. He's like, I almost lost everything. And we, we don't know a whole lot about Asaph. Like, like we, we do know that he's the son of Berechiah, which what is it? That is a cool name. Like if your name's Berechiah, People are going to call you Barracuda, and then Cuda for short. I mean, it's just going to happen. So we learn that he's, he's the son of Berechiah. We know that he's one of the three families that was put in charge of leading worship in the temple. And so he wrote songs and invited people into worship with songs. And we know that 12 psalms are attributed to him. And that's Psalms 50, and then the first 12 or 11 psalms of this section. But there's lots of things that we don't know. But what we do know, because he wrote songs, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit with his words. And these words describe his struggles and the amazing, secure love of God that has led countless numbers of people into worship and sustainment. And so I think it means that Asaph was somewhat on the mature side of the Christian scale. And he's describing, I almost lost it all. I struggled with doubt. I almost lost my footing. I almost fell. I was teetering on the edge. And so mature Christians can and will struggle with doubt. I think this also tells us mature Christians, when they're struggling with doubt, they need to be careful about envy. So look at verse 3. It says he's got to just be honest about what he sees. Like he looks around and he sees those who frankly care nothing about God doing better than most, certainly doing better than him. And he sees their lives and he wants their lives. That's what envy is. It's when you see someone else's life and you're like, I want that life. I don't want my life. I deserve that life more than they deserve that life. And so he looks around and he sees things like this. Like look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, he sees these people who care nothing about God finding prosperity in their wickedness. Not even despite their wickedness, but because of their wickedness. Like he sees it growing. He looks around and in verse 4, he says that their bodies are, are, are fat and sleek, which I think just means smooth and sexy. I mean, I don't know. He looks at them and he says, man, they're not only like making more money than me. They're not only like finding more fame than me. They look better than me. You know, I um, this was years ago. I was talking to a young lady, and, and she made this comment. She's like, why does God love celebrities so much more than all of us? And I, I think we were talking in the context of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, um, whatever you think about that. I, I, I don't watch it. I don't watch it. But she's like, why does God love them more than us? And so I was like, what do you mean? And she said, look at them. They're so beautiful. God must love them more. Now, I mean, I just like, I mean, I'd like, you know, theologically chokehold slam that idea. You know, I was like, ah, it's not true. But man, just this week, Kinsey and I were working our deck. We were painting the ceiling and it was like hot, like hot, hot. I mean, like sweat is stinging my eyes. Paint is in my eyes. I actually dropped some paint in my eye and just hung out on my contact. Like all I saw was white. That is a terrifying experience. Like, I, I don't know, how, I can't get it. I mean, I paint on my hands. I mean, I was desperate. I was like, get it out, get it out, get it out. And we were painting and we were talking about some people we know and their son's being recruited to play football all over. And man, I started to think, man, I was like, man, that's great. But then I kind of started to think, I was like, gosh, man, they're wealthy. 
Like, I don't even know what he does for a living. It's been explained to me several times, but it seems like he plays golf and makes more money than God. I don't know how it works out. <laughs> and so I started thinking, man, they have what I don't have. And then, then I started thinking, like, oh, my gosh, they're, like, they're so athletic and good looking, you know. I started to think, I, man, I, I don't know. I mean, if he lives on protein shakes, I don't know what he's doing. But, like, how do, you, how do you work a job and look like that unless your job is to look like that? And so I just remember thinking, like, man, I just started growing this. And I started thinking, they're, not, they're probably not outside painting their deck with sweat and paint in their eyes. I tell people I like to do that. Maybe I just say that to feel better because I can't afford to pay someone else to do it. I don't know. And then in just a moment, I said, gosh, man, it makes it hard not to start thinking that the secret to happiness is money and beauty. Envy. You start to look at what someone else has and you start to think that should be mine. If I had that, my life would be good. I would be satisfied. I would be happy. And what it does, it takes your eyes off what you have. You forget to be thankful for what you have. And so by whatever you look and whatever you behold, you're feeding upon it. And what you feed upon starts to grow. And so that envy, when it was mixed with some first just disbelief, it starts to get mixed and it starts to grow and it starts to grow. And you have Shakespeare's green-eyed cat toying with you, only to eat you. And so envy, it mixes with disbelief and it starts to grow and it gets worse. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, you're going to see words that say, basically say, they seem to be impervious to troubles that everyone else faces. And so they're not troubled like the rest of us. You see that word. They're not stricken like the rest of us, which stricken means held, grasped, pulled down, choked out. There's something charmed about their lives. And it seems that God either doesn't know about it and they're getting away with it or God doesn't care. And then you start to think, well, why should I care? And so... The first thing, even mature Christians start to struggle with what they see and what they believe. But when that disbelief or that faltering starts to get mixed with envy, it only grows in dissatisfaction for what you have. And bitterness will kill what you actually have. And so if we're just looking at what we saw, mature Christians, man, they can struggle with doubt. Mature Christians need to be weary of envy. It's more dangerous and more sneaky than we know. And then mature Christians will struggle with their motives. Like, like look at the progression what we just looked at. We started with doubt. Like Asaph is looking around and he says, man, I just don't know. I don't know if what I see is really matching up with what I believe. I don't know if it's actually working out. And then it kind of sinks down into envy. Like, why don't I have what they have? It seems to be working out for them. And then it's going to go down one more level beneath that where he's going to question his motives. And, and so, like, think about this. Doubt. Asaph was honest about what he saw and how he felt about it. And I'm telling you right now, if you're going to defeat doubt, you need to speak it out loud. It has power over you until you put words to it. But then it's going to go deeper into envy. His doubts expose this envy. See, by speaking what he saw that was bringing him doubt, it exposed that he actually had envy because he's like, man, look at them. They're sleek and sexy. They don't get sick like I get sick. They make more money. They're not painting deck with paint in their eyes. Like, look at them. 
And then it exposes something beneath that. It exposes a motive. I want their prosperity, their bodies, their charmed lives. But underneath that, he saw something twisted inside of himself, something selfish inside himself, something that tainted his motives for following after God. Look at verse 13. And so I know, I know we're skipping down, but this is the summary statement of everything that's happened. There's a little bit of a judgment statement coming in between that, but he says this, All in vain, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And so I want you to look at that. It's not just saying it didn't work, all in vain. Like if something is in vain, you had an end in sight and you wanted that end to work out. But it's not just that it failed, it's that your end was in vain. Everything you did didn't work out. And so, I mean, you could put this in so many different things. My, my freshman year in high school, I decided I needed a girlfriend. Um, it just seemed like the cool thing to have. And so I was like, man, I need a girlfriend. And so I was like, man, how do you get a girlfriend? And so I watched Saved by the Bell. And so Zach Morris taught me how to get a girlfriend. And so uh, the winter dance was coming up. It was a big deal, people, winter dance. Uh, I was about this tall. My pictures of my date, she was about this tall. I, looking back on it, I realized why I didn't have a girlfriend. But I had Zach Morris to help me out, and so I talked to her dad about my plan, and in a moment of weakness, he let me do my plan, and so I found out a time she was coming home, and I put chocolate kisses into a trail into their bathroom, and then I hung flowers in the shower, and I wrote a note that says, now that I've kissed your feet and showered you with flowers, will you go to the winter dance with me? And yeah, yeah. Saved by the bell. It worked for me. But it only partly worked. So she went to the winter dance with me, but I actually wanted her to be my girlfriend. Like, I didn't do it to make her feel good about herself. I did it to make her feel good about me. I didn't do it just to build her up. I did it to lean her toward me. I did it for an outcome. And so even though I got the pictures of the winter dance, it felt in vain. All my efforts didn't accomplish my real goal. Asaph is saying the same thing. In vain, I followed after the Lord. In vain, I've kept my hands clean. In vain, I've washed my hands in innocence. In vain, I've done all that. And it exposes something about his heart of why he was following after God. He was following after God for a certain kind of life. He was serving God, not to serve God, but to be served. He was doing good, not for God's sake, but for his life's sake. And it wasn't working out. As he looked around, he said, other people aren't working like I'm working and they're getting what I want. It's all in vain. Derek Kidner, he says about this verse, he says this, to decide that such earnest has been a waste of time is pathetically self-centered. What did I get out of it? Asaph says. And so the, the complaint, when it's said out loud, actually exposes why we even went for God and it causes great harm. Like look at verse 14. He says, for all the day I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And so he says, listen, I have been looking and envying and it has been growing and it is the green-eyed cat monster that would, you know, taking over my life that is toying with me. And I wake up every morning and I feel 
Look at the words, stricken and rebuked. I I feel God's rebuke. My misery has been showing me my wrong motives that I haven't been honest about. God was speaking to me in my discomfort, causing my discomfort, because he was exposing something in my heart. You know, verse 15, this is for uh, all the parents out there. It just says, like, I'm glad I didn't talk to my kids about it because it would have really messed them up. Verse 17, or I'm sorry, verse 16. Listen to this description. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. A wearisome task. Too heavy to hold on for much longer. The same commentary, he goes on to say that with this realization about Asaph's motives to serve God, there was a turning point. He says this, he says, The very formulation of the thought has shocked the writer into a better frame of mind, which he now goes on to describe. And so like, I don't want you to miss the progression. Like, This is telling us all the while how we defeat this. Like, how do we defeat doubt and envy and bitterness? We start with naming our doubt and being honest, and it exposes the sin underneath that. It's not sinful to doubt, but what was growing was envy. And so all of a sudden he says, man, it's not just doubts for nothing. It's doubts because of envy. I envy their lives. And then he steps one step further. He's like, it's not just envy. It's like I'm dissatisfied with God because I think he owes me. Oh, my gosh, I've been serving God for my own ends because I think if I do good, I'll get what I want. And so the question is, like, do you have doubts? Do you have envy? Can you be honest about your motives? Now, how do we fight it? And Asaph tells us. And so what he says is, he says, I named my sin. I looked at the amazing grace of God, and I do it in regular worship among God's people. And so in short, he says, man, I go to church to do church. Like he says, I start to regularly confess the sins of my heart. As soon as I'm aware of it, I just agree with God about it. I look continually at the grace of God. For every one sin I confess, I look at the grace of God ten times. I just made up that number. I don't know if it's the right algorithm or not. But you have to look to the grace of God. You have to look to the grace of God again and again and again. And then he says, I do that in regular worship with God's people. I maintain a regular pattern of worship with God's people focused on God's truth to recalibrate my view of life to God's reality. And that's why I shorten it for you. Like, go to church. Like, like first, I, I name my sin. Like, he says, I'm bitter. Look at verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. And so my soul is pierced with bitterness. It is drowning in it. And I've been feeding it with envy, wanting the lives of others. So first he just names his sin. And then he looks to the grace of God. And it's kind of hard to see at first, but look at verse 22. He's basically saying, God has been so patient with me. I didn't see it. I was biting the very hand that was helping me. And I didn't see it. And God was abundant in grace for me. Verse 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And so the picture is what I I, I saw in a meme of an animal caught in something. And, you know, that someone's trying to, help the animal out, but the animal perceives the help as 
danger because it's causing pain and uncertainty. And so this video I saw, this like deer was caught in like a rope swing. And so it would run away, but then just swing up. And then it would run the other way and just swing up. And it just kept going back and forth. And at times it looked like fun. At times it looked like peril, like it's going to break its neck. And the thing is, if you want to step in to help an animal that is scared and trapped, you need to know you're going to get hurt. So it says, I see God's unbelievable patience. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like an animal toward him. And he was so gracious to me. Like, like a hurt animal, we thrash against God's hands. We perceive his help as a threat. He says, I was brutish toward you. I was like a beast. And then we have the third thing. So first, I name my sin. Asaph says, man, I was growing in bitterness. It wasn't just disbelief. That was there, but I was growing in bitterness. And then he looks to God's grace. You have been patient with me. Remember, Asaph is a mature Christian. The sign of doubt or the sign of envy is not a sign that you're not a Christian. It's a sign that we still live in this world and we wrestle against our flesh and it's real and we have to fight for belief. And so it starts with naming sin, looking at the grace of God, and then going to do worship with God's people. And so look back at verse 17. In verse 17, we have this moment where he's been describing all the things that are wrong. And then he describes himself what was wrong. Man, I've been doing this in vain in verse 13. And then he says, man, this was persisting until, look at verse 17, until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you ruse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And so the full picture didn't come into view until he went to be with God's people to worship. Now, I realize you might be like, well, Casey, this is kind of self-serving. Go to church. It'll fix all your problems. I didn't say give money. I mean, you can do that too. But And first off, I didn't say it. Asaph, in his desperation, says, I couldn't carry it by myself. It was too wearisome. And I think it warns us that, man, we're not going to fix these things out just alone by ourselves with a Bible under a tree with a bag of chips. No matter what kind of chips they are, it won't work. I think he's saying, man, we need to go specifically to the sanctuary of God. And so notice, look, look at verse 17 again. Notice, he didn't say until I went to a sanctuary of God. He said until I went to the sanctuary. And so Asaph has in mind the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem was the main place that the bridge from sinful humanity to God was made. Like in the temple, a lot's going on. In the temple, you're going to find singing. Like people are singing truths about God to one another. It was Asaph's job. In, in the temple, you're going to find sins being confessed. You're going to find prayers being made by you and prayed over you. You're going to find scripture being read and taught. And you're going to find sacrifices being made on your behalf for your specific sin. 
All of these actions are there to paint a picture of reconnecting to God. They're recalibrating your soul to rest on what is really, really true. The truth that is truer than the true that you see and feel. Like, look at what Asaph remembered. Look at verse 23. All of a sudden he remembers, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. And so he remembers all of a sudden, God is with me and he is holding me. I'm not on my own. It's not all up to me. You have been patient. You've been waking me up every morning and there has been discomfort because you've been trying to show me the dangerous cat with green eyes, envy that is toying with me to kill me. But then verse 24, it says, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you receive me to glory. And so it says, God will guide you. You don't have to figure it all out on your own and we can trust the scripture. So Psalms 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we want a floodlight that shows the whole forest. But he says, there will be enough for the next step. And then it says, Open your life to God's people. Asaph had been wrestling with what he saw and what he felt on his own. And it was only making him bitter. You know, the, the scriptures, they tell us, like, we're not saved to be on our own. We're saved to be a people. 1 Peter 3.9, it says that we were called into a people, a royal priesthood. Ephesians 2.15 says that God is bringing a bunch of individuals to make one new man out of the many. And so God will be with you. God will guide you. And then verse 24 says God will receive you. You can be sure that God will receive you. He won't turn you away. In the temple, sacrifices were made to cover your sins. A substitute took the penalty of your sins and died in your place. On the altar, you laid a dove, a lamb, or a bull, and it was killed in your place. This was to reconnect you back to God. It was a bridge. Worshiping in the temple grew his confidence. So much that he exclaims this. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All of a sudden, Asip, with his doubts that he brought in, with his envy that he needed to confess, with everything that was going on, with his embittered heart, he came to hear the songs. He came to pray prayers. He came to have teaching over him. He came to be reminded of what was really true. And over time, though grace works slowly sometimes, he exclaims, what else do I have but you my flesh and my heart might fail, but God, you are my strength and my portion forever. And what we have is so much better than what Asaph had. In Matthew 21, also in John 2, it's also in Luke. Jesus walks into the temple and he's disgusted by what he sees. He sees business. He sees separation. He sees programs that are meant to build up and make wealth. And so he starts turning over tables and running everyone out. And so when the religious leaders asked on what authority he was doing this, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then he says what the temple is for. He says, the temple is for 
people to come in and pray. It's for the house of prayer. It's for people like Asaph who are struggling with doubt and envy to come in and find healing and wholeness and truth. And so he said, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. And after Jesus was nailed to the cross and after Jesus' blood was spilled and after Jesus' resurrection happened and also after Jesus' prayers when he cried out to the Father, you know, my Father, my Father, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was after all of that happened, the disciples remembered this phrase so much that Hebrews picks up and it says, Jesus is the temple we're looking for. He is where the sacrifice has been made. He is where we reconnect to God. He is the bridge that makes us children of God again. See, his body was destroyed on the cross. His blood was spilled for your sins. His prayers were not heard as he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't answered so that we in our desperation and our disbelief filled with envy or covetousness or whatever that sin might be gripping us, we can cry out and we will be answered. So we come here weekly to sing truths deep into our hearts. We come to confess our sins that we might be healed. We come to hear prayers and to make prayers and to ask for prayers. We come together around the scriptures. We come to recalibrate our hearts to what is really true. We come to look at Jesus and to let him satisfy us. We come weekly to say what Asaph said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. He's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would carry exactly whatever we have, either to prayer in the back or we would carry it forward to the cup and to the loaf. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us words like where our doubts are, that we would actually just articulate those words. And just like Asaph, as he's articulating his doubts, he would find, we would find something underneath them. And maybe that's envy or just dissatisfaction. But we'd find that, and then we'd find something under that. And, Lord, I am so thankful for Romans 7 that even the Apostle Paul questioned his divided loyalty where he would say over and over, why do I do what I don't want to do? And why can't I do the things that I want to do? And then he came to a conclusion that says there's two laws inside of me. There's one that wants to obey God and there's one that doesn't want to obey God but wants to obey self. And then he says, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The presence of the battle is proof in enough of the Holy Spirit of God working in your life. So we just bring the other side of the battle and we're just honest with it. Lord, I pray that you make us honest. And Lord, I pray that you would satisfy. I pray that we would, these words, they're your words, given through Asaph, a mature believer who struggles with doubt. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make that truer in our lives today. We ask this in Jesus, his name. Amen.
Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.